Well, good morning, church. Always feel like if church gave out merit badges, you should all get one as you leave today for, you know, Spring Forward Sunday. So I appreciate, appreciate you being here. If uh, Robert Oglesby and I were talking, I think there's some, uh, some donuts left. So if you start to crash and you need to just kind of slip out and get some energy to keep going, uh, there's still some available out there. I saw, I think someone down here had three donuts staged under their chair, I think just to, to get them through the service. So, sorry. Not really, but I wish I was. Okay. <clears throat> I think one of the most important aspects of a church community is that we can be there for one another when things are, well, when they get as hard as they possibly can in our lives. And this has been, among other things in this week, you know, it's busy, I know we all have a lot of things going on, we've had some families uh, in our church family, who've been going through some really difficult moments. Uh, you, you probably heard by now that on Tuesday, uh, our brother Trey Zikafus, who had been battling cancer for the last couple of years, uh, went home to be with God. Uh, and we had the, the visitation on Friday night and the funeral yesterday. And I just want to ask you to be holding the Zikafus family up to the Lord in prayer uh, as they continue. You know, when you lose somebody like Trey, someone you love deeply, uh, you don't just move on. You kind of limp forward and you keep limping and you start to learn how to live life with that limp. And all of us when we lose people, we know what that's like. And so I just want to ask you to, to keep holding on to them in your, in your prayers. Uh, Vicky's here. Trey's dad is here. There's other, other folks who are here this morning. Uh, and I want us to, to be mindful of that. I uh, got a text from Glenn Lewis this morning. I, I didn't see it when it came through at about 3 o'clock this morning. Uh, Tony Peak who's one of the members of our church. That's Glenn uh, with Tony. Uh, Tony had a surgery earlier this week, and he had a lot of health complications in addition to that surgery, and he died of a heart attack this morning. And on Monday, uh, we're going to be coming up on the second anniversary of losing Mark Rogers. So we got a lot in this room this morning. And I, I think at times, you know, we, we come to these moments in church where with all of the, the lives and the stories that we have in the same room at one time, it's easy for us at times to not remember that there are always broken hearts here with us. There are always families who are struggling. There are people for whom this past week or maybe last night was the worst moment of their life. And I don't always know what to say. In fact, I, I never know exactly what to say. But I do know that we can continue to be there, uh, that we can be there for one another, that we can, 
without having to say much at all, we can remind one another of one of the most important truths of the gospel, which is you're never alone, not even in your worst, hardest moments, maybe especially in your hardest moments, you're never alone. Church has to be the place where we have the courage to face those hard things because we believe that God is with us in the midst of those hard things, and we want to be living reminders of that. So I just want you to hold these families in your heart. I'm going to say a prayer in a moment, but I don't want this to just be the only prayer that is spoken on behalf of these these precious souls. And I don't want this morning to be the only time we do, and I know that's not the case, but I just want to encourage you. Let's find a way to not just talk about church being family, but for church to actually be family. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for the gift of community. We thank you for the gift of a spiritual family. And God, we want to live into that promise. We want to live into that truth, into the ways that you want to give us over and over to one another in the spirit of your son. Uh, we pray for the Zikafus family. We, we pray for Tony's family. We pray for the, for the Rogers family. And we, we pray for other families that all of us in various ways bring with us this morning. People who need to know that you're there for them, that you love them, that you care for them. And God, we pray for wisdom. We pray for insight to know how to, how to remind them of that, not through our words as much as through our lives. We are so thankful that even though there are times that all of us have to journey through the valley of the shadow of death, that you really are with us, that you find ways to hold us up and hold us together, to guide us, to comfort us, and we want to be a church that does more than talk about those things, but helps one another experience those things. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So this morning, we are continuing our our careful look at the image of Jesus that Mark wants us to see. And if, if you think about kind of the the ground that we've covered so far in this series, we're, we're up to Mark chapter 10 at this point, but I just want you to think real quickly about the, the overall development of the story. Mark doesn't have time for Jesus to be a baby. Mark wants to hit the ground running, and so he, he starts his story when Jesus' ministry starts, when it launches. And from the moment it gets going, it just keeps picking up speed. And Jesus is able to do everything he sets out to do. He's able to do what people who've grown up expecting God's special servant, the Messiah, to show up at some point. And they're all deeply hoping that the Messiah is going to show up to them and for them in their lifetimes. But there's a part of them that thinks that can't possibly happen because generations have come and gone and the Messiah hasn't shown up. But there's this guy that suddenly appears and he's able to do the kinds of things that only the Messiah is supposed to be able to do. He can heal any disease. He can cast out any kind of dark spirit. He can put people's lives back together again. He can talk about the heart of God, not in some abstract theoretical way, but in an intimate way, it's a heart that he knows. 
because it's a heart that he shares. And when you do those kinds of things, when you're able to do the impossible, you start to create a movement. You start to create this group of people around you who they're going to follow you because they can't believe what they've already seen. They also can't deny what they've been seeing, and they're hoping they're going to see a lot more of it. So you start to have all these people gathering together as Jesus' followers who have different kinds of expectations of the kind of Messiah he's going to be. And Jesus starts to intentionally open their eyes in ways that disappoint many of them. He starts to say, I know that you're following me for different reasons, with different expectations. I know that you, you think you know how the rest of this story is going to go, and you think you know how this story is going to end. You, you think that I'm not only going to be able to heal diseases and, and cast out demons from people's lives and help people start over again. You think that I'm going to not only build a group of people around me that's interested in me, but I'm going to build an army. That I'm going to put together a, a large enough military force to set us free from the oppression of the Romans so that we can be on top. And you want to figure out how you can be a part of that. And I'm not here to be that kind of Messiah. Now, they are so convinced that he is not who he says he is, but he is who they want him to be, that he has to keep talking about it. He has to keep trying to open their eyes. And we're not just talking about the people on the edge of the crowd. We're talking about the 12, the, 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 the 12 apostles, right? The, the ones who are the closest to him, who've seen everything he's done from the beginning. And they're the ones who he has to keep saying, look, I'm not I'm not kidding. I really am going to be a different kind of Messiah. And the way that I'm going to change everything is I'm going to lose everything. Do you still want to follow me? You know, Peter says, yeah, I still want to follow you. I just want you to lead me somewhere else. I, I still want to follow you. I just want you to do what I need you to do. No, Peter. And over and over, Jesus has to keep trying to set things straight. Now, it is always tempting for me when I'm reading scripture to feel as if, you know, I, I'm so thankful that I'm not as confused as they were. I, I'm so thankful that I wouldn't try to redefine Jesus in ways that I want and ignore what he's actually trying to help me see is true about him. I'm so thankful that I'm smarter than Peter. I don't know. I think Mark knows something about us that maybe we don't know about ourselves, or at least he sees something about us that we can't, we can't always see, which is we don't need to be set straight just once. We don't need to have the eyes of our hearts open just once. We have to constantly expect for God to to help us see something we've never seen before, we have to constantly be open to God saying, you know what, I know you started out with these expectations, and I know that I, I've helped you learn through your life that those expectations weren't accurate, they weren't right, 
But somewhere along the way, you started slipping back into wanting Jesus not to be who he really is, but to just be who you want him to be. Well, one of the things that we've talked about, right, that I think we, we can understand that, that we connect with those first apostles, those first disciples in a lot of different ways. But one of the ways that we connect with them, I think, is that we see Jesus as a means to an end. He's a way to get somewhere. And we're not usually thinking he's the best way for us to get to a cross. Right? We're, we're thinking maybe he's the best way for us to get ahead or to get even or to get significance. And Jesus has been talking in ways over the last couple of chapters in Mark where he's trying to say, I'm not a way for you to get ahead or get even or get significance. I'm the only way for you to get real life, good life, the life you were created to have. And it is a life that is not defined by getting. It is a life that is defined by giving. And not giving some, but giving all. Do you still want to follow me? And that conversation is continuing this morning. Now, before we open up Mark together in just a few moments, what I'm trying to say here is we need to be honest with Jesus about the reasons we're, we're following him. And we need to be prepared for Jesus to be honest with us in return. Now, for, for you and I, for us to be honest, right, about why, what are our motivations? What do we hope to get out of this relationship that we have with Jesus? If that's going to happen, if, if we're going to be able to tell him the truth, it starts by us telling ourselves the truth. Sifting through our hearts and our souls and our minds and figuring out what are our expectations, Where is it that we hope he'll take us, even though he keeps telling us he's taking us to a cross that leads to resurrection, when we want to try to find a way around crucifixion to get to resurrection on our terms, on our timetable, and the way we want it? So brothers and sisters, I'm asking you this morning, even if you're a little sleepy, I'm asking you this morning, why are you following Jesus? What do you hope to get out of this? And how are those hopes and expectations possibly leading you to misunderstand who Jesus is and who Jesus is really calling you to be? Okay, let's go ahead and read together now. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 35. This is continuing developments and missing the point, Okay. So James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him after he's been doing this, right, for a while now. He's been trying to help them understand. They come to him, and they think this is a good conversation to have. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's a rough start to a prayer. And I'm not sure that I would just say it this way. I just think I find more polite ways to say this when I pray. Right? Ways that sound a little more 
you know, selfless instead of selfish. So you got to love how direct James and John are. I love the fact that Matthew adds that their mommy was involved in this somehow. Mark doesn't, doesn't include that, right? So James and John come to him and say, we want you to do whatever we, we ask, right? And then Jesus actually continues in this conversation. And he could have said, get behind me, Satan. He's already done that. But he says, okay, uh, what is it that you want me to do for you? And they replied, we'd like the two most important places in the kingdom, other than your place, right? Let, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now, they're not talking about in heaven. They're talking about with, when Jesus defeats the Romans and sets up shop, one of them wants to be secretary of state and one of them wants to be vice president, right? That's what they're, that's what they're saying. And he says, as he should say to us so often, I'm not sure you know what you're asking. I don't think you know. Because you don't know who I am, and you don't know what my glory's really about, and you don't know where I'm going. Even though I've been trying to tell you over and over again, you're not getting it. You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Now, in, in the Old Testament, the cup of the Lord is not something you want to have to drink. Most often in the prophets, the cup of the Lord involves the, the punishment that comes on humanity because of sin and brokenness, right? It's the same cup Jesus is going to beg for God to not make him drink in the garden. Now, you sure you want to have that cup, James and John? You sure you want to have to go through the baptism of fire that I'm going to have to go, go through? Right? And they actually look the Son of God in the face and say, yeah, we got that. We, we need that. And then he says, okay, I'll give you what you're asking for. You are going to drink the cup that I drink, and you're going to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. You're going to go through times of suffering for the sake of other people, right? But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. Now, biblical scholars debate what is it that he's exactly talking about here. You know, there's already been the transfiguration where you have uh, Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus there. They're pretty important people, right? And then the whole grand scheme of things, maybe they're the ones who are going to be on his right and his left. Or he could be talking about, and I tend to agree with this, there are going to be three crosses, and there's going to be someone on the right and the left of Jesus, and James and John, they're going to have to bear a cross through their life, but not those two crosses, right? Those places have already been decided. So he says, that's not mine to give you. When the ten heard this, they became indignant with James and John. You, you can imagine the conversation about how, how uh, frustrated they are that James and John had the courage. You know, it's like when you're growing up and there's always that, that sister or that brother who always, they're just a step ahead of you to say shotgun before you get to the family car. And you have fights about it and then you have to come up with rules so that the, the same kid doesn't always get to sit in the, in the front seat. That kind of thing. Like, I think that's the level of frustration they have. They are frustrated that James and John asked. I think part of them is also frustrated they didn't ask themselves. And I'm guessing some of them still don't get it and hope 
that the reason that Jesus tells James and John they can't have those seats is they're reserved for them. Just all kinds of disappointment and frustration for Jesus. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. These four words are the most important words for us to hear this morning and let them find a way into our hearts. You know how the world works, Jesus says. You know what people do when they get into positions of power and authority. They make other people do what they want. They slip into toxic ways of expressing that authority. They only care about being on top, and they don't care about how they're treating the people who are beneath them. Not so with you. Not so with you. I know how the world works, Jesus says. That's not how the church is going to work. Okay? Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even I, right, even I didn't come to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I don't know how Jesus doesn't just give up and walk away. I mean, it's one thing if people who are in that larger movement and crowd aren't quite getting it. It's another thing when the 12 people that he has spent the most time with, he has poured the most energy into, he is trying to get them to actually understand him and understand who he is and how that is supposed to help them understand who God really is. But they're too busy making their own God. And they're too busy making their own Messiah. They're too busy trying to, to make sure that they get what they want. That they get what they feel like they signed up for. And I think what Jesus is trying to get them to see and Mark by writing it down is trying to get us to see is that following Jesus cannot be about what we're going to gain. Following Jesus has to be about who we're going to become. Who we're going to be. And this is how it works, brothers and sisters. The more time you spend with Jesus, the more you're supposed to be like him. The more you're supposed to become like him. The more you share time with him, the more you're supposed to share his dream, his agenda, his values, his kingdom. We don't get to redefine the kingdom. We either get to embrace it or reject it. We don't get to renegotiate the terms. We embrace it or we, we run away from it. Jesus wants us to understand that he's not a way for us to get someplace else. He's the way that we learn the best possible way of life. By watching him and believing that God will help us do the kinds of things we think only he can do. You can't do it on your own. You, you can't decide to be like Jesus. You have to partner with the Holy Spirit to become more and more like Jesus, but you can absolutely resist the Holy Spirit's desire to transform you. 
And you can fool yourself into thinking that you've changed enough, that you, you're not perfect, but you know, you, you do enough. You're not who you used to be. Well, I, I love the fact that church is the place where we're not who we used to be. But I also want church to be a place where we can confess to one another that we're not there yet. I don't want us to spend a bunch of time studying Jesus. I want us to learn how to spend time with Jesus. And studying Jesus is absolutely a part of that. But if, if we reduce it to that and then we decide that that studying, reading about Jesus is the same thing as spending time with Jesus, living alongside of Jesus, we're going to find that we need more than just our minds and our intelligence, our cognitive understanding transformed. We need all of who we are to be changed. And I don't have to know what that's been like for you to tell you this morning you need more. You need to hear more. You need to see more. You need to experience more. Because God isn't through with us yet. And that's not supposed to be a statement that makes us feel like we're burdened. It should be a statement that gives us hope. True greatness is revealed through what we do. It isn't achieved by what we do. I think that's what's going on here. Right, the, the 12 want to feel more important. They want to feel like they're somebody. And in a world where you, you, you look at it and you feel like there's always going to be people at the top and people at the bottom, and a lot of us feel like we're kind of stuck in the middle somewhere, all of us are going to have moments when we deeply desire to somehow get to the top, to experience what we think is true greatness, But Jesus wants us to know that the real greatness inside of us is something that's been given to us. It's not something we're going to accomplish. And the more we try to use all of our behavior, all of our our activity, all of our, our waking moments, trying to prove to ourselves and everyone else through what we're able to do that we're great, Everyone around us knows that we're doing those things out of a deep sense of spiritual insecurity, of thinking, if I can't get to the top, then I don't matter at all. And Jesus says, in my kingdom, it's a race to the bottom. Because the world's way of rating us, of of looking at us and finding faults and saying, yeah, you're, you're okay, but you're not. You're not as impressive as we hoped you would be. That that, that feeling in our lives of, of just not being sure that we really matter. Jesus says, if you'd stop trying to, to prove it to yourself, you could already taste and see that the Lord is good and you're good because of the Lord. That you don't have to, to prove it to yourself or anyone else. You've just got to learn to believe it, to trust it, to trust it enough to change not what you're doing, but to completely change why you're doing what you're doing. I think all of us struggle with this. We don't all struggle with it in the same way, and we may not all be struggling to the same degree this morning, but we all know what it's like to fall into the trap of trying to achieve, to feel 
our value and our worth. Instead of using what we're doing to help other people. Because we're, we're not trying to, to impress. We're not trying to, to convince somebody that, that we're the best or we're amazing or, or any of the other things that we, we chase after so often in our lives. What does it mean for us to trust that when Jesus says, you're enough, in fact, you're more than enough, because you're God's son, you're God's daughter, stop running around trying to get something outside of you other than God to instill in you that deep sense of being loved and that being more than enough. I, uh, I left home, uh, you know, when I graduated from high school, came out here, uh, and I've, I've basically done the vast majority of my ministry uh, in Texas, but I grew up on the West Coast, and so, you know, my parents have always lived on the West Coast, they've kind of moved around in different places, but Two different times when I visited home, my parents had changed churches, and so I would go into a church, and I wouldn't really know any of the people there, except for they thought they know me because the stories my dad had told about me. feels the same way here. Uh, you know, he wants a rebuttal. He wants equal time when he comes to visit. Uh, so people thought they knew me, but I didn't really know them. And I, my dad, for a while, was preaching in San Diego, and I don't know uh, if you're aware of this, but... The Navy is a huge thing in San Diego. Uh, and so I, I go to my dad's church, and there's all kinds of, of different people that have different roles in the, in the Navy. And uh, I, I end up visiting with this guy after church one day, super nice, nice guy, and super interested in, in my college career at that point, just all kinds of questions. We end up going to lunch. We spend a couple of hours together so encouraging, just poured into me in the time that I had to be with him. And he, he leaves the, the lunch table at the restaurant we're at. We get in the car, and my dad says, uh, that's the Admiral of the Pacific Fleet. As in, he controls everything that happens in the Pacific. And he said... Son, I'll never forget, he, I didn't know that's what he was, and he was at church, and he invited me to lunch one day. He asked me if I had time on a Tuesday. I said, yeah. He said, I'll send a car to get you. So that was my first tip off, that something was going on that I didn't know. He said, and then this, this you know, car comes to pick me up, and there's a senator in the car. Uh, in fact, he's on TV He's kind of crossed the political divide at some point in his life. Joe Scarborough, have you heard of this guy? You may have heard of him. You may not be able to stand him. Whatever. He's sitting in the back seat of this car with my dad. They go out to a helicopter that's waiting for them. They get in the helicopter. They fly out to the admiral's boat because they're on deployment that day. My dad gets off. Did you say ship? I don't know what I'm talking about. Thank you. Okay, so I don't know what I... Sorry, I'm not in the Navy, but you all know this, right? That's not the point. So we, my dad says he gets out there, and the admiral 
walks my dad around like he's the most important guy on the boat. Okay? Has him say a prayer at their meal and, and treats my dad like he's more important than the senator. And my dad said, I just kept feeling the whole time, like, I don't deserve this. And I'm like, Dad, you didn't. Right? And the only reason he got, by the way, your tax dollars at work thing, the only reason my dad got to go that day was the senator was supposed to go and, and be with the admiral, right? So he, he found a way uh, to, to get my dad to be a part of that. And I'm going to tell you, when I found out who the guy was after how kind and thoughtful he had been to me, and then I found out he had been kind and thoughtful to my dad, I wasn't less impressed with him. I was more impressed with him. That he didn't have to throw his weight around. That he, he didn't wear, you know, his, his uniform to church where you'd see all of the accolades and all the stuff that would have reminded everybody how important he was. And I went back a couple of times as my dad was working at that church. And every time I came back, this guy would clear his schedule to spend time with me because he cared about the fact that I was going into ministry. And he wanted me to know that he thought it was the most important thing I could do with my life. And I think about him often. And I think that's the way I want to be great. Well, my dad uh, at some point moved to Portland, Oregon. And he's been there for the last 20 years or so. And one of the people who goes to his church is a state senator. My dad has a habit of not telling me who people are <laughs> before I meet them. And so this, this woman just, I go to church and... Margaret introduces herself to me and spends all this time asking me about what I'm doing with my life and says, would, would you and Lauren come over for dinner? I want to make you dinner. And so we go over to her house and she's, we're helping her in the kitchen. I'm just trying not to mess things up. But we're all working together, getting ready for, for dinner. We have this great evening together. We get in the car. My dad says, hey, um, she's, a, she's a state senator. Thanks, Dad. Glad that when that political conversation came up, I knew to be quiet, right? Like I, every time we go back, she tries to find ways to honor the fact that we're there. She, she has really close to the, the court side, uh, constant tickets for the trailblazers. And so when we go, we're almost always, we get a chance to do that. And then they'll, they'll show her seats and on the big screen and, you know, we're there. And it's like, yeah, she's not even here. She just gave us her seat so we could be there. It doesn't make me think less of her. It makes me think more of her. Right? I want to be great like that. I don't want everyone to know that what I'm doing, I'm hoping to be seen and I'm hoping to be given accolades for it and I'm hoping that they'll know how important I am because of how impressive I'm able to, to kind of carry myself through this world. I want to be somebody who when later, when you find out what I could have done with the time I spent with you, you're overwhelmed at how much I cared about you instead of impressing you. That's what life in the kingdom is supposed to be like, brothers and sisters. That's what life in the church is supposed to be like. I guess what I'm trying to say here is God's greatness is already within you. Live like it. Live like it. I will never forget, <clears throat> I was out in this lobby several months ago. And a mom and her, her little guy came up to me. 
And I could tell he wanted to talk to me, but he was incredibly nervous to talk to me. And so he was kind of holding on to her legs, and he was barely peeking at me, but he was kind of pushing her too to kind of get closer to me. And she said, he has a question for you. And uh, I, I have all kinds of thoughts about what he might ask me, right? And I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to, if he asks me about the Trinity, what am I going to say <laughs> in a way that's going to make that clear in 30 seconds or less? <clears throat> Here's his question. Are you God? That's his question. And before I even, I mean, the first, absolutely not, right? Like, I mean, I just immediately started answering that question. I kind of got down, you know, where I could see him face to face. And I said, no, no, buddy, I'm not God. And I am so sorry that you ever thought that. I'm just the guy that gets up and talks about God. And uh, that was enough for him to feel like he could hug me. Right now, here's the thing. I answered that so quickly, and that conversation happened so fast that it didn't really sink in until later when I was trying to go to sleep that Sunday night. And I thought, isn't that, isn't that what's at stake for all of us all the time when we bear God's name in this world? Isn't that what's happening when people watch how we treat other people, especially people who the world would say they're less important than we are, or they don't have the resources that we do. Isn't the world basically asking, is this, what's God, is this what God's like? The way you treat people? The way you, you interact with them? The way you, you find a way to get on their level? Is this what God's like? And I don't think you and I get to just say, well, stop asking that question or stop expecting that of us or, or can you look at somebody else a little more closely because I feel, you know, vulnerable and I feel like you may notice too many things about me that, that I'm not proud of. We, we don't get to say stop looking carefully at our lives to learn about the God we say we follow. People just do and they're gonna keep looking. And so what I want you to live with this week is that question. What are people learning about God? What are people learning about Christ when they spend time with you? And what are they learning about your own sense of God's greatness inside of you? And how are you helping them experience the truth that God has already placed greatness inside of them? People are watching. The world is watching. And they all know how to compete. They all know how to try to get ahead. They all know how to spin stories that benefit them. What they need is a church that's not trying to prove its own greatness. But instead, finds a way to serve. Finds a way to be less important. Finds a way to demand less out of everyone else. Finds a way to be last on purpose. And to trust that God will do more with that than we could ever ask for or imagine. There is greatness inside of you. There is greatness in this church. We need to, we need to live like it. We're going to sing together now. And as we do, our shepherds and their wives will be standing at these three main exits from this room. They're there 
to visit with you, to meet you. So if you came this morning with anything that you want to talk with a Christian couple about, that you want to pray about, please take us up on our offer as together we stand and sing.